Bet you wish you were here. Hey guys, welcome back to my um, podcast, my friends, my dear, dear, dear chums. We come now to a couple of back-to-back episodes with Irish Republicans. Now I think at the end of the last episode I said it was going to be with nationalists. But I've either lied there now or made one of my famous boo-boos. And sure, look, that's my prerogative. And then you're like two Republicans in a row. Oh, mix them up, I will. Yeah, mix them up. Sure, they're just going to be the same, like, you know. They're not actually, they're quite different interviews from two very high-profile Irish Republicans. And like, say now you get to this part of the podcast, you're kind of thinking, oh, here we go. Puff piece for Republicans. The mask slips. Oh, yeah, I bet you he has no unionists. We three unionists, mate. Yeah, three unionists to come. So buckle up and settle in, because they're later in the series. But for now, let's talk republicanism. So I'd like to say two things before I introduce my first guest, as in this episode. And the two things are, one, I'm a mess, right? And also, I feel like I've been doing this podcast now for what feels like between 7 and 12 years, right? So back in the day, I was talking to somebody about doing an American version of this. So I've ended up asking this guest a couple of american oriented questions, like American audience-friendly questions. I haven't cut them out because the answers are so interesting. I thought, you know what, I'll leave them in. And also, just like in an earlier episode where I kind of did a little bit of a voiceover with one eye on doing kind of um, lay stockings adverts on potentially the internet or the radio, I'm still wide open to an American partner in this process. So if you're listening to this, you're in America, you kind of think, okay, there could be an Irish-American version of this. Like, get on to me hot because I'd be really interested in that. I'd be really interested in most things anyway, to be honest. I'm just a particularly interested guy. Anyway, enough faffs as you. My guest for this episode probably needs no introduction, but I'm about to give him one. Now, I have to say, I was very nervous about this interview. Would you believe as well, I, this is my first interview that I did for this podcast. I was given by Bauer Media a couple of mics and a H5 and a really helpful tutorial on how to use it. But like they were up against a guy. I used to be in a band years ago and um, I was banned from touching gear. So I was allowed hump gear in, not hump hump. Don't get me wrong. Don't don't go there. Drag gear upstairs and onto stages. But at that point, I was ordered off the stage because I was so calamitous around technology. I wasn't allowed to try and set anything up or I'd break a cable or I'd pull a switch off a feckin' amp or that kind of stuff. So picture the scene. I'm up in West Belfast. I'm about to meet kind of, you know, I'm an Irish Republican, kind of heroes of mine. I've never done a podcast before. I haven't really interviewed many people before. And I'm... A technological disaster area and my first interview is with none other than Jerry Adams so I'm in a bit of a panic really I'm sitting in Danny Morrison's house who you'll hear in the next episode an absolute gentleman we end up doing the interview in Danny's front room very kindly and Jerry Adams is coming down to do the interview and I look out the window I think that's potentially my first sight of him although we were at an event together the day earlier in Fela but this is kind of my first real interaction with him like I'm a I'm a kind of I'm a small controlled mess now like I'm inside I'm fucking I'm wrapped in cables I'm trying to turn the thing on I'm like oh my god like could I not have started off by interviewing you know my buddy's dad or something rather than Jerry Adams and I'm sitting inside in Danny Morrison's uh, front room and we we look out and Jerry Adams is passing by because he's given a neighbor a bottle of wine and a present so I think it's his birthday or something and anyway Danny Morrison looks out and he, he I can't do the accent now because I'll never work in Belfast again but he just taps him on the shoulder and then he goes look at this What whatever their equivalent of suck is like you know look at this fella sucking up <laughs> like, <and> this <laughs> image of Jerry Adams kind of like quite dotally walking on the road like and giving this present 
and uh, Danny taking the piss out of him and actually that was kind of the theme of the couple of days that uh, obviously very well respected in his community of course but like they're not afraid to take him down a peg or two so for listeners outside of Ireland or the UK hopefully there's some listeners outside if you don't know who Jerry Adams is Jerry Adams is perhaps the most famous or infamous living Irish Republican, depending on your reading of history, I suppose. He was the president of Sinn Féin from 1983 to February 2018. So from the Troubles right up to the modern day almost, where Sinn Féin go from a party completely on the fringes to now the largest party in the either the North or the South, which, to be honest, is a pisser for me because... Now every Tom, Dick and Harry is into them fucking posh people and everything. You know, it's more fucking Marx and Spencer's these days, no, than Karl Marx. Now, so, aside from Brexit, we also talk about America, we talk about Stephen Fry and Twitter and much, much more. It's very, very funny. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Adams. Hello, Jerry Adams and Shaw. What's the infamous Tog Hickey? <laughs> When when people think of Jerry Adams, what do they think of? Depends who they are. Irish Americans of a certain age would remember me as the guy that got the visa, courtesy of Bill Clinton. And for a mad couple of years, we went coast to coast and touched Irish Americans who had never probably been motivated or mobilized before. My family think of me as a loving, kind, generous, rarely there type of a guy. My friends think of me as, again, very, very generous, giving of uh, all of my worldly possessions to them, those, those who are less lucky than I have been. And I'm blessed with opponents who sometimes can't talk straight because they can't think straight when it comes to being faced with uppity Irish Republicans, even of my vintage. So, who knows? And I don't, I don't spend... A lot of time worrying about it. I, I'm blessed with the fact right, that this is me saying this, so you make your own judgment, that I think I'm grounded. And I think I'm grounded because of the community that I come from. And I think I'm grounded because I've, I've always believed that this is always about empowering people, including myself. And you do that by changing the political conditions. So in this community, if you're making a balls of it, they tell you. They let you know. <laughs> <laughs> and they used to always say, at the head of the uh, peace process and all the sort of high wire act and all of that, the most common thing that I would have heard would, uh, you're doing very well so far. <laughs> <laughs> There's a kind of a threat in yeah, there. <laughs> yeah. On an international level, you're participating and welcome to participate in Nelson Mandela's funeral, for instance. But in the south of Ireland, you would be sometimes in some quarters depicted as a bit of a baddie. And is it something that doesn't really bother you then? Or do you find it ironic? Well, it's a bit of a baddie is understatement in some <laughs> in some quarters. We got to recognize that partitionism is very rife in Ireland. And why wouldn't it be? Because we've had it for 100 years. Now, at popular level, what I call you know, street level or village level or rural Ireland level, people ha have a different take. I've long believed for a very long time in this notion of two Irelands. So you, you have the on-the-ground Ireland of people who are doing their best, are challenged by their economic or social conditions, even though they might not be 
in the poverty that we had, although some people still are, of course. But they're doing their best and they want things to be okay and they want Ireland to be okay. The vast majority of them want a united Ireland. They want peace and they want decency and fairness in their lives and the lives of everybody else that they know. And, you know, there's, there are numerous examples of that, you know, their support for international causes, their support for people in difficulty because of famine or war or conflict or all of that. And then there's the other Ireland, which was established when partition was set up, which was basically just swapping masters. We used to be ruled by English and they were conservative and all of that. And then they put in place a, a domestic group of conservatives and so so you have official ireland and you know there's not enough talked about this by the way in my opinion there's official ireland in, in which the poor didn't have a chance were totally relied upon emigration any government which relies upon emigration as a matter of policy and, and not only the emigrants were, were they forced to leave but they also financed they, they sent the, the parcel or the, mm. the few quid back or the few dollars back and women were treated miserably and war you know, all these revelations just recently, but like in, in the 70s, like a, a woman couldn't have uh, undertaken a hard purchase agreement. I remember Nell McCafferty being shocked. She, she was a, a journalist, very highly paid in the Irish Times, and she wouldn't get a wireless or a gramophone record or gramophone player or something like this. And the guy said, uh, you have to get your husband to sign this. And she says, I don't have a husband. And she says, well, we'll get some man <laughs> to sign it. <laughs> so that, that's, and that, that's without getting into the awfulness of the Magdalens and yes. all of that. So you, have, so you have the two Irelands. I also think, I know this is a very long-winded answer. It's best typified for me by the Taylor and Anstey. So the Taylor and Anstey were a, an old couple. And they had a Cayley house and there was music and there was crack and there was storytelling and all of this. I find the same with Belfast, particularly working class women of a certain generation. There's a nerdiness about it, right? There's a nerdiness, you know, women women can take you down very, very easily and older women in a very benign sort of way. So they were telling all these yarns, you know, and they were, it was rural Ireland, so they were talking about cocks and they were talking about bulls and they were talking about all the things that people, naturally, natural things, natural things. And then along came this uh, guy, I forget his name now, and didn't he take their stories and publish them? And then they were condemned from the pulpit. Priests arrived out of their house and burnt the book, went and berated them. Now there's an old couple just having the crack with the neighbours and then they, they end up in this situation. So for me, that, that hypocrisy, that mm. awfulness of a couple doing no harm but being creative enough, storytelling, entertaining, playing music, listening to music, uh, and because it didn't meet the, the measurement of the really desperately hypocritical values of the establishment, the crozier cracked down on them. And and, and the same thing happened to like Andrew O'Brien, to James Joyce, to yeah. numerous of our, of our great writers. Yeah, I suppose James Joyce tried to, had to go as, as early as he could to fulfill his ambitions as an artist. Just to pop back to America for a second, so of the Gaelic hubs in the United States, like Springfield, Chicago, Quincy, so of those places, do you think that they get the struggle and what role can the US play in, in unity now? When I went to Spring Hill, Springfield, Gomeleskill, Massachusetts, I was greeted in Irish. Wow. The last people that came off the Blaskets went to there. And I, I, I think the last survivor of 
the people from Velasquez just died last year. Mm. Carney, of my name, of my memory serves me right, was his name, and he published a book just recently. So we went to the Irish Centre on my first visit. I was with Richie Neal, who was a Congress member. He is now the chairperson of the Ways and Means Committee in the Congress. Very, very powerful position, probably, you know, third or fourth in the packing order. And that was the first greeting was Kajimura Tatu, Falchon and Shaw, oh. and Rodiella Martian. These people have kept the faith. There are two elements to it, and I find the states really intriguing, and I, I, I haven't travelled because of COVID in a wee way. And we were very lucky. Like, like we did uh, a sort of one time we were away for about, about three weeks and we did a city a day, you know, and we didn't stop. We just went, blah. So you found like one old woman down away down in, in Kentucky drove about 400 miles to be at an event. You know, when we went up close to the Canadian border, people came down from Alaska and other places to be at events. Some of them are third or fourth generation, some of them are first generation, and some of them, their people had gone. They all went because they were forced to leave. But some of them had a Republican history that gone as a result of the the outworkings of the uh, treaty and the Civil War and and all of that. So America is this huge, I mean, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff about America, Irish America. Like a lot of the music that's been played now, the old sets, that are being played now were saved in America because when people, particularly Republican people, were forced to leave after the Civil War, they included musicians, so fiddle players, people playing flutes, all that crack, and they would have brought their carry sets and their Slego sets and their Donegal, all this crack, right? So then were picked up in the states and recorded the, the old sort of '78s, and that that capital life. I mean, the music that's now sort of bouncing out of the young people that are winning the big All-Ireland prizes, a lot of it was saved in the States. Similarly, in terms of keeping faith, if you think about the proclamation where the Americans are exiled children, they're singled out because the Americans funded the revolution. They funded, or at least that section of Irish Republican, yeah. Irish America, the children of the Great Hunger. They funded, they, they, you know, the the J.J. McGarrity's and the Devoys and all, all the others. And then just in terms of People who mightn't have that political view and wouldn't be wouldn't be Sinn Féin supporters, but they want Ireland united. They want the country united. They don't want the Brits here. They're not anti-British, not by any stretch. And there's a nonsense preached that you know Irish Americans are romantics, they're out of touch. People in the states know more about what's happening here than a lot of people in Dublin or Cork, but they also know it quicker because of the time. And so they're reading tomorrow's paper when we're going to bed tonight. So, so they're very, very, very uh, informed. And uh, I mean, all of our people that worked, Rito O'Hara, a good friend of mine and a comrade, worked there for a very, very long time. All of the presidents from Bill Clinton, now they did this to varying degrees. Trump didn't do anything, but well, he appointed a special envoy in fairness to him. Others did less. But they all did something about the peace process. Mm-hmm. And, and Bill Clinton did the big thing. He did the heavy lift. I, I think he became engaged intellectually at first. And then he became engaged emotionally. And he's still engaged. He's still to this very day engaged. And it's all because of Irish America. You know, it's, it's, it's not because you know, he, he's in Arkansas saying, I'm going to try and bring about Irish freedom. You know, he's trying to get elected as a president. And along comes Irish America and say, we, we, we'll support you if you do A, B, and C, and in fairness, he did. 
Brilliant. I was saying at the start that I find you very funny and I know a lot of people find you very funny on Twitter. And I just wondered, had being funny, in your opinion, has it ever saved your life? I'd probably have saved my sanity. <laughs> uh, I have these uh, out-of-body experiences. When I was going to the States the first time, it wasn't really me. You know, you're caught up in this sort of maelstrom of hundreds of journalists turning out mm. all this crack, you know, and so on and so forth. So you have this sort of surreal type of thing. And so the, the Irish are great. We did a big event, I mean, a huge event in New York. We're asking for questions. And one of the people in the audience says, where did you get your tie? <laughs> 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 so, so all, all those little uh, sort of nutty things that happen, yeah, stay with you and uh, keep keep you right. And was it a conscious decision to show a more playful side on Twitter, or did you just adapt to the medium as you went on? Because you've built up quite quite a f- uh, following. Uh, it it was probably more accidental. I mean, any writing that I've done, if you go back to, I mean, it was Donny, Donny Morrison first invited me to write for Republican News when I was a prisoner in Long Cash, and he wanted an article from in the prison looking outside at what was happening. But it quickly became yarns about myself, but mostly about my fellow prisoners. And a lot of them were very funny people, you know, and got up to all sorts of escapades, you know. So I quickly was writing about the fact that some of my friends had uh, captured some pigeons and then they built a pigeon loft in Long Cash and then they trained the pigeons that that they were able to release the prisons when the screws would come in to rack the little arrangement. So the pigeons would take off and then of course the pigeons would come back when the screws left. So that became, rather than a serious look at what was happening outside, that became the stuff of it. And I suppose I like to see things in a in a quirky way. So Twitter was at the suggestion of the Sinn Féin press office, but I only did it on the basis that I would have the editorial control of it. <laughs> because it, I, I, there's no point putting it, you know, although you have to do it, but you know, these statements all the time. So... I just fell into it. And Martin McGuinness, God rest him, used to live in terror of my Twitter account. <laughs> you see. <laughs> he was really, really terrified. <laughs> and every so often they would say to me, what have you said now? And one, one time infamously he said to me, very privately, how are you going to get out of that? <laughs> so that that's I just, I just slipped into it. So touching on Brexit, I just wonder, like, obviously it has affected the lives and businesses of people in the North very badly. But as as somebody who's dedicated their whole career to reunification, was there any aspect of it when it kicked in that you thought that this is now the the potential last signpost on the route to a united Ireland? Did you welcome it in any way? Well, I wouldn't call it a career, he said, being very politically correct. (laughs) But uh, no... I'm a bit sanguine about these events. I mean, I do think there is going to be the referendum on the Good Friday Agreement as set out in the Good Friday Agreement. So I've always felt that was going to happen and we just needed to get a head of steam up behind it, get the Irish government on board because the Irish government doesn't want a referendum. And why do they not want a referendum? Because they don't want Irish unity because that will loosen their establishments, hold on par, and who knows, we can actually get a real republic 
and working people could be catered for and our folks could come back from the States into a free United Ireland and the people who live here could have decency and fairness in their lives. So Brexit, I mean, Brexit is just a, a series of really tragic, stupid mistakes by the English establishment, by that element of it, which is really shone in, you know, it's little John Bull type of a, <laughs> uh, an, an, an approach. And, and I warned them publicly at the time, the DUP tied their flag to that particular uh, mast, put their face in Theresa May and whoever it was before her, I can't remember. And uh, then was uh, this guy, uh, Johnson. So initially what we have to recognize is that it's bad for Ireland. Mm. The notion of the North being given a special status actually came from Sinn Féin. I remember I was actually still in the Dáil at the time. And Andy Kenny was desperate, and Michal Martin wasn't much better. And what they were thinking about was, when they got round to it, was the 26 county state. That's where, they're, where they had to think nationally. They just had to think nationally, because one of the outworkings was clearly going to be a hard border. So one of our people, Stephen McLeod actually is his name, one of our people came up with the idea, well, why, why don't we argue for a special status for the North, sort of a hybrid status? And bear in mind, the people in the North voted against Brexit. Yeah. So all these people who, in parties like the Democratic Unionist Party, just totally ignore the votes of the democratic the, the populace when, <laughs> when, it, when, it, when it suits them. But anyway, we, we persuaded the Irish government, and there was great work done at the time by Martina Anderson, who was leading our MEP team. And they did huge work. And then, in fairness, the Irish government got its act in order. And there's a big lesson in this. See, if an Irish government did half on the North or half on the issues that haven't been delivered in the Good Friday Agreement, as they did in Brexit, because it suited them to do it, you know, mobilising all those European states, getting them all on board, getting them to sign up. If they even did a quarter of that, you'd find that the North would be progressing and the whole island would be progressing into a more harmonious shape very, very quickly. So Brexit has given opportunities. It has put the issue of unity front and centre, not least because for those, and I'm very critical of the European Union, by the way, but for those who want to be part of the European Union, it has said for people in the North, you will automatically be part of the European Union if there's a United Ireland. So that, that's, a, that's a huge... And you see, the big, the big achievement of Sinn Féin in the Good Friday Agreement negotiations was to actually get the referendum. In other words, the British involvement in our affairs is now conditional on the people North yes. and South deciding. Before that, it was absolute and, and had been for centuries. So we, we get rid of the old Government of Ireland Act, and that was one of our big objectives at the time. So now we're in a position, and even though it is very, very challenging and we should not minimise it, we can actually be the generation, whatever happens out of Brexit, we can be the generation that ends the union with England, that brings about whatever type of new Ireland, whatever type of agreed Ireland, the people decide. And it's fair to say that... Uh, Brexit has accelerated that debate. And I, you don't have a crystal ball, but looking ahead 10 and 20 years time, what does Ireland look like? And what does what is now called the United Kingdom look like? Well, before we do that, let's just go back and pay tribute to the people in the States again, because they came up to the plate. I mentioned Richie Neal. Richie said, if you do anything in terms of Brexit that upsets a Good Friday Agreement, you will not get a trade agreement with the USA. Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, came here, made those remarks in London, made those remarks up on the border at Derry, and made those remarks, and I was there, in the Dáil. The plethora of people who, across the political landscape, 
had power in the states come out very, very firmly and told the British government, don't mess with the Good Friday Agreement. And then Joe Biden, the president, came out as well and both made clear his own position. And then when he went to London, made it clear privately. And they briefed on that, that he told Johnson, don't mess with this. So again, that's the power of Irish America. And they are politicians who have vested themselves for the last 20 years or whatever, some of them longer, of course. And, and trying to be positive. And, you know, and we can be very critical, and I am, about U.S. foreign policy and other issues. But on this issue, Brexit showed that we have friends, the people of Ireland, the Unionists and the rest of us, with friends in high places in the USA who are not afraid to use their influence to try and get the British to do the right thing. And that should be an open door for the Irish government. Should Britain pay reparations, colonial reparations? I think that's all a matter of a matter of and for negotiations. They would become bankrupt if they were trying to <laughs> compensate the people of this island for the horrors and the divisions and the sheer savagery of, you know, if you go back over the century. I would just be content that we do a decent deal with them that allows us to make the move from partition into a new Ireland as stable and as sustainable and as peaceful as possible. And of course, that will have to include them paying their, uh, their fair share of what, whatever, for whatever period of time. But suffice for them to say, for once, we're going to accept what the people of Ireland want. We're going to leave. And then we'll all be friends. <laughs> okay. So in your years of negotiations and media responsibilities, dealing with the British. Did you have any favourites? Was there certain people either in the British establishment or the media that you thought, like, this is a good, solid person and that you, you made a connection with? I, I thought David Frost was very solid. I thought he was, uh, I remember him telling me one time, he was talking about a state of interviewing. I'd just done an interview with him and I was afterwards I was saying to him, that was very fair. And he says, well, look, there's two types of interviews. He says, have you come at the interviewee like, like a storm? The interviewee will put on his big coat and wrap himself up and protect himself. But if you come at the interviewee like a warm sun, <laughs> <laughs> then he or she will relax and talk. And, and who benefits? Everyone. The listener. Because yeah. they're getting the information that the person isn't defensively putting up barriers. I could list, back in the day, Ken Livingstone came here, back in the day, and, and, and with others. Difficulty as you always leave people out. Tony Benn. Tony Benn, I thought, was a remarkable person. There were a number of Labour women whose names, unfortunately, Joan was one of the people involved, really courageous and standing up. And remember now, this is the time when we were under military occupation that friends of mine from South Africa when they came here, or friends of mine from Palestine when they came here into this place, marveled, were just astonished. And they, and they were coming out of war zones, you know, and they were just astonished at the, the density mm. of British military apparatus. I remember Stephen Fry, and we took him to the pub at the corner here, the Grave Diggers Arms, Michael Hattons. We had a film festival as part of the Fela, and we were featuring uh, his film about Oscar Wilde. Oh, yeah. And at the foot of the street, this street actually, we're doing this interview and there was a barracks and and that's a strategic part of west belfast because that's the main arterial route so, so so the brits took control of it and they had this huge hulk of a you know checkpoint charlie would have been a wee boy compared to what they had down there and stephen fry was totally uh, aghast at it and he was wondering about how he would be received when we went into the grave diggers arms 
and they all started to applaud him. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. uh, there are people like that who put their, you know, and there are lots of people, just the Irish too, in Britain over the uh, years. Jeremy Corbyn, been a friend of Ireland for, and a friend of the working class for a very long time. In fairness to Tony Blair, and, and we got lucky, you see, to a certain degree. If you reflect on the period of the 10 years, the year, wherever it was, a short period leading into the Good Friday Agreement and then the 10 years afterwards, there was a consistency of leadership within Sinn Féin and within the British government, and to a lesser degree within the Irish government with Bertie O'Hearn. And, you know, Tichig changed, the leader of the SDLP changed, the leader of unions changed a few times. But there was that consistency. We were working away yeah. for all of those uh, years. So, in fairness, you know, and, and we also warned them about going into Iraq and you know, in, in some detail. But in fairness to him on the issue of Ireland, broadly speaking, uh, Mo Molum was the one that was easiest to get on with. I know everybody says that, but I spent many Sundays up at Hillsborough just walking the grounds with her, trying to get her to do things, including things here, you know, like the development of the mountain, the Black Mountain, Diffus Mountain as a, a people's park. It isn't quite that, but it is a public space, a wonderful place. Other, getting the demilitarization of these neighbourhoods, trying to get the reclaimed land that belonged to the community, GA pitches and uh, community infrastructure, schools and so on. So she was, she was, uh, she got it. She was decent, you know. Mm. The tea lady in Downing Street was a Monaghan woman. Wow. So she used to come out, uh, she was always glad to see us coming over. <laughs> the crack. Wow. Uh, and there were lots of other, there were lots of other like invisible people. By invisible, I mean there weren't public figures who understood and saw past uh, the nonsense. Martin McGuinness always got an easy run when he went to Britain. <laughs> I, I, I have been spot at. Wow. I, I remember sitting in the car and you, when, if you're meant your security, you shouldn't put the window down. But I had the window down and this Yahoo can pass and spots in my face and I'd be shouted at and on this crack and one time we we were stuck in there for a long time and we were going back to catch a flight we pulled in which we normally wouldn't have done into one of these motorway miles to get a burger or something and somebody must have told somebody but this lunatic of a former british soldier appeared in the mile for the time that we were there went round shouting and screaming you know i nearly killed you in Murphy, you bastard <laughs> and all that crack but most people were were, were welcoming martin of course they just threw their arms around him and sm <laughs> smiled at him, and like like the long lost uh, son coming coming back. The lesser of two evils. Yeah. Um, he used to say, I, "I get all the credit." He's talking about himself. He gets all the blame. <laughs> and explaining this, like just on that, I just I'd love to know, you know, when you're in the midst of that peace process and it's coming towards a conclusion, like does the weight of history, is that heavy on your shoulders or how, can you remember in that experience what that was like? Uh, I, I, I have to say, and I know this might sound a bit arrogant, but I always thought we were morally superior to the people we were meeting. I always <laughs> right. thought that, I always had that view. You know, we were there representing people of this island. So I, I was never daunted. You know, obviously you, are, you understand history and you understand the footsteps of the people in which you tread. But no, I'd, I'd never, to tell you the truth, it never uh, bothered me. Uh, 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 afterwards, because you'd be on the ground quite a lot and people come up to you and thank you or introduce their children to you or tell you that 
you know, their son now works in the fire services. They never got a job, you know, blah, blah, blah. And or thank you for getting peace. And I know a lot of people were harmed and hurt and killed in, in the conflict, even within those bereaved families or, you know, and, and I don't blame anybody who feels differently. But it was only when you get that sort of very personal thanks from folks or recognition that you realise the uh, the hugeness of what not just me, but the entire Sinn Féin leadership, but John Hume, our people in the States, Bertie O'Hearn and Furness and Blair and, and David Trimble and all the others who grappled with these uh, with these challenges. Tell you a funny story. Well, I think it's a funny story. <laughs> so we, we discovered this uh, bugging device in our office, and uh, it was about three foot long. It was a joist. I said to Martin, well, we'll bring it back to them. <laughs> <laughs> so he, 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 he very seldom either reputed me or abandoned me, but he said, no, Jerry, no. no, no. <laughs> right. So anyway, we got Alex Maskey, and he, he went over in the boat. We were going to Leeds Castle, and uh, Ollie went over in the boat before us with this yoke, right? And uh, we walked it. I was like carrying a coffin, maybe appropriately enough, out, out, out to the press pack. And we, and we told the press pack that uh, we'd found this and it was bad faith. And we're negotiating with these people in good faith. And what are they doing? They're bugging our offices. And here's the very bug. Uh, and said, you, you, brought, you brought the bug back. Yeah, we brought, we're going to give it back to them, right? <laughs> so we marched into uh, Tony Blair's, uh, and Bertie was there at the time. And Ned this in the uh, the corner of the room, and then Blair come in with the teach on Taoiseach. and uh, Martin said to me, "You're on your own." <laughs> <laughs> so I, I said, uh, I, "I said to Blair, we we found this bug in our office, and here it is, and we want you to take it back, right? And it's a disgrace, and so on." So he went over to it very very cautiously, and then he said to me, "Is it on?" <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we actually oh took a bit God. out of the bug and we put it on uh, up for auction. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and a guy in the States bought it. <laughs> yeah. hey, 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 just kind of a shinner loving, like, is it how you go? Just ask him about the rat all, nah? Nah, I suppose. Yeah, I did, mate. Wind your neck in. You asked him straight out. Well, well, first of all, I don't think there's any need or use. I'm quite secure in my own head about the righteousness of what went on. So I don't think there's any need to refight the war. You know, but unfortunately, most people support war. We we get chipped, you know, because we extol the memory of the hunger strikers. And the people given us a chip will extol the memory of Michael Collins, quite rightly, or others, you know. So I don't I don't get carried away with that, you know. Uh, George Washington was, a, in his day, a terrorist. So the answer, the shorter answer to it is this. Nobody here. I'm I'm born and bred here in West Belfast. I've lived here all my life. Even when I was on the run, I very rarely ventured out of here. None of us went to war. The war came here. The war came to us. We woke up one morning, <laughs> and there we were. We were just surrounded by British military. And there's something which is a total requirement for making peace, and that is dialogue. Total requirement, and th- and that includes listening. But they made the mistake of giving it over to the generals. Once the generals come in, Shine, that's it. The rest just follows as night follows day. So we didn't go to war. The war came to us. Jerry Adams, thank you sincerely for your time. It was an absolute pleasure and a laugh. My <laughs> Well, guys, what did you make of that one? 
I have to say I know, right, in terms of just the kind of self-reflection, listening back to that, I do find it a little bit cringe. I'm a little bit more confident in myself in the next episode, but as I say, that was my first go at it, and it was Jerry Adams, etc., etc., and I just, listening back, I do think it sounds a little bit like kind of a transition year student in school doing a project where he interviews someone famous from the community. Do you know what that kind of like... Just want to say, John, thank you so much on behalf of all the teachers and pupils for your kind time. When did you realise that you loved hurling, John? Anyway, sure, look, we're all learning, we're all trying our best. God love us and God save us. I'll give you a little bit of what happened next then. And so began, I would say, an even more surreal experience than the actual interview itself, where I kind of found myself in the Felons Club, meeting all these people I had met before, like, so welcoming just incredible but I effectively had a chaperone a kind of a paternal very sweet chaperone in Jerry Adams insofar as he'd bring me over to people if you like have you met Ty you know she god love us he's after coming up from Cork he's kind of gently taking the piss out of me everyone is kind of gently taking the piss out of him there's no big kind of drama as such that he's there he's just a guy totally embedded in his own community and I have to say and I'm, I hope this doesn't come across like a puff piece I actually hope that I've kind of given all my guests an equal hearing on how sound they are because they actually all have been so sound. I'm just giving you a little sense of my experience of him. Couldn't do enough of you, basically. Just couldn't do enough of you. And really concerned all the time about like what's kind of going on on the ground in the community. Like, is this person sorted? Has this person been invited? Oh, I must go over to this person and, you know, I must sign this for him. There's a photo here and... Yeah, it, as he says in the interview, like it's, and that was certainly the sense I got in the, the couple of days I was there. He's a West Belfast guy, even though on an international level, depending on your reading of history, you could see him as a hero or a villain. And I suppose I'm just letting you know that I didn't see any cape. And if he is a villain, he's certainly a very kind of sound out, low key, considerate, good crack one. That's all I'm saying, guys. I'm just giving you a sense of what my experience was. So guys, click on there now or come back next time for uh, another Republican and uh, another very, very enlightening interview. And uh, anyway, Shluk, that's it. Shluk, you know the drill. See you soon. Mind yourselves. And for God's sake, mind me if you see me on the road. Bet you wish you were here.